Hi, listeners. Uh, this week, we have a special episode of Category Is podcast for you. We have Dr. Camille Birch, who is a political science associate professor at Villanova University, who's going to be talking with Maurice and I about politics, the election, voting, polls, and more. So we hope you guys enjoy this podcast, and um, we'll see you at the end of the show. I'm Justin. I'm Maurice, and you're listening to Category Is. All right, listeners, we have a special guest this episode. We have Dr. Camille Burge. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Villanova University, where she serves as Assistant Director of the Center for Peace and Justice Education. Prior to joining Villanova in the fall of 2014, she received her Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Bethune-Cookman University and a Master's and and PhD in Political Science from Vanderbilt University. Her research and teaching areas of expertise within um, lie within political psychology and racial and ethnic politics. Her research has been published in the Journal of Politics, Political Research Quarterly, Research in Politics, and Politics Groups and Identities. Camille was recently appointed to the 2020 pre-election task force. He works alongside academics and survey leaders um, at Gallup, NBC News, Pew, CBS News, ABC News, CNN, Huffington Post, and other reputable polling organizations to analyze local, state, and national elections data. Welcome to the show, Dr. Burge. How are you tonight? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on our podcast. We are really um, fortunate to have your wealth of knowledge and expertise and specializations in political science, especially given this unprecedented um, political or election season, rather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been... Word for it. Awesome. <laughs> um, this is like a really, a really informal conversation, but we're really excited to speak to you. So my first question is, um, just tell our listeners a little bit about your life's journey to the point in your career today. As a, you know, Black woman, how did you get this interest in politics and in political science, and then specifically decide to uh, focus your scholarship in race, gender, and class? So, I mean, I can trace my origins and interest to politics to watching 60 Minutes with my dad. So my dad worked in sales for most of my childhood uh, for Kellogg's corporate, actually. And uh, he traveled a lot. And so whenever he would be home, I would love to like sit, just sit with him and be by him whenever I could. And that usually happened, especially on like Sunday evenings. And so we'd watch 60 Minutes and on commercial breaks, we'd have these brief conversations about, you know, what was going on, right? And so I just found myself really interested uh, in politics in that way. I was in student government, a student like SGA president in fifth grade, right? I did all this like <laughs> student leadership stuff uh, all throughout elementary, middle school and high school. And I, I thought that was naturally gonna lead me to a career in law, going to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got into a summer um, program, the Ralph Bunch Summer Institute at Duke University. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a PhD exposure program for racial and ethnic minorities. And so it was during this program that I was like, well, I like math, you know, like I like writing. I like, I think I'm really interested in studying like racial and ethnic politics. I think I could go and get a master's and PhD and, you know, do this work. Um, And so after I left that program, I abandoned, you know, LSAT prep and I started studying for the GRE. (laughs) (laughs) I started studying for the the GRE and applied to PhD programs. And so once I once I got in at Vanderbilt, um, I just always found myself drawn to uh, the politics of racial and ethnic minorities. Um, thinking about what stimulates or constrains our political behavior, mm-hmm. uh, how our policy opinions 
uh, are shaped how there's so much diversity within uh, the black community, heterogeneity within the black community. And yet, and still there are times in which we can come together um, and act together and, and vote. Uh, and so those were the things that I, I became most interested in. And so I, I have three areas that I focus on in my research, intersectionality being one of them, um, focusing on race and gender and more recently race and sexuality and thinking about colorism within the African-American community. But I also do work on uh, black white relations uh, and my largest body of work is on collective emotional experiences. So that is how do we experience emotions as members of groups, especially as black people? Um, and then what does that mean for our policy opinions and our political participation? Awesome. So something that has been stirring up emotions for months on end, it seems like, is the upcoming election. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's why we wanted to have you on the show to kind of talk about um, the things that, that people are upset about, are worried about, angry about um, <laughs> in this coming election. So, you know, with that, the most recent things have been the debate. <laughs> <laughs> the first probably only presidential debate um, was a couple weeks ago. And then last week was the vice presidential um, debate. So my question to you is, are debates still relevant? Like what are people hoping to hear or not hear or what are they hoping to get out of a debate? Yeah, and I mean, I think the political science literature and the, the interpretation of the masses of debates is, is where we get a really huge difference. What we know in political science um, is that debates are more like sporting events, right? Nobody's going to a sporting event to change their jersey. You're going to root for your team. Um, and so it is with political debates, right? Um, so you turn on the political debate and the idea is not that you're going to like change your opinion or change your team or change your jersey, but you're going there to root for your team. Um, and you're, you're going there to hope that they do well, right? And if they do, you're like, <laughs> yes, like that's right. You know, that's why I'm voting for them. Um, and to the extent that they don't do so well, you're kind of like, oh, darn, but that's still your team, right? You're just a little bit disappointed. And so uh, I think the broader interpretation, you know, when you're watching the news, it's like so much matters, so much is hinging on this debate. And it matters in terms of like perhaps enthusiasm amongst people that are already inclined to support you, but not so much, at least in the literature from what we found, uh, as it pertains to people actually like switching over and deciding to vote you know, for someone. Like they do these, you know, polls um, and temperature gauges like during the debate to see how people are feeling, especially the groups of independents. And I mean, that'll, that only matters a bit. Like, but for the overwhelming majority of the people, folks are already decided, have already decided who they're going to support. And so when you're watching those debates, you're either really enthusiastic or even more enthusiastic about your candidate or maybe a bit less, but you're still going to probably turn out for them. So right. in a follow-up to that is I always, interview the undecided voter like immediately after the debate <laughs> do these <laughs> do these undecided voters really exist or are they just shy to say who they support or are they just like seeking attention so um there's this new book out it's newer um uh, not like this year but it's by a political scientist uh two political scientists one's name is Yana Krupnikov, and the other one is Samara Klar. So they wrote this book called Independent Politics. Um, and in this book, they make this really interesting claim that, that independents, people who say they're independents are actually just stealth partisans, right? right. And they feel like in that people are choosing now more so than ever to say that they're independents because they don't wanna get involved in like the disgust and ickiness that has become, you know, polarized politics. Mm -hmm. So like, there's no faster way to end a conversation with someone that you just met, like sharing your party affiliation, particularly if they don't share that party affiliation, right? right. Um, so what do people make these decisions to do? When you're having conversations about politics, you just say, I'm an independent. Right, and then the, the dynamic of the conversation is actually different. And so, you know, what they write about in this book that I think is interesting, and I, I actually subscribe to, is that the overwhelming majority of people who proclaim independence uh, or to be moderates um, are actually individuals that are self-partisans, that know who they're voting for. Uh, and even when you're watching, you know, after the debate, right, the people with the little temperature gauges, you can tell who they're supporting, yeah. right? Like, like yeah. you can absolutely it's tell. Very obvious. Right. It is 
painstakingly obvious who they're like, oh, well, Mike Pence had a terrific performance or I just didn't like what Kamala Harris had to say, right? Like, you're not an independent, stop playing these games. Um, but there are there are some people that are, right? Like, so there are some people that are very clearly, you know, moderates that are independents. What they argue in this book, which I think was just really genius, is that, you know, that doesn't apply to most of the people that that proclaim to be independents, right? Yeah. Um, that most of these people that are independents are stealth partisans. <laughs> right, right. Definitely agree. So I have an interesting question. So um, now that I'm home working from home for COVID, I usually have like MSNBC or CNN in the background and I'm constantly subconsciously taking in 24 hour news. And I think right. the 24 hour news cycle has really impacted our politics in this country. Um, how do you um, feel as though that uh, people who are political hobbyists, if you will, who just kind of watch the news and then only watch the news that reconfirms their own worldview. Right. Um, how do you suggest that, how do you believe rather that that climate or that culture has impacted the way in which we engage in voting? Like, I think it's, yeah, because so I think I, it's been crazy, just yeah. not good for us as a country, but. So, um... I would agree with you that it's it's been it's been quite crazy. And so what we know is that most people like to watch and subscribe to channels that already confirm their points of view, right? Like if you watch Fox News, you're not all of a sudden going to wake up tomorrow and be like, I'm going to watch Rachel Maddow and all of the other programming that comes on after it. And vice versa. You know, if you're watching MSNBC or CNN, you're not going to automatically wake up and and start to stream, you know, Fox News 24 hours a day. Um, and so what we know uh, about like that effect is that that not only applies to our media environment in terms of the broadcast media that we're watching, it also applies to things like social media. So oh, yeah. what ends up happening is that, you know, we have these echo chambers, right? Like, so you're surrounded by, by people that are saying the same thing that you believe in, that are endorsing your views. And so what I think we see happening um, it, as part of this process, it, it contributes to what we now know as polarization, right? Greater polarization among the masses. Whereas like when you're watching the opposite news outlet, you say things to yourself like, how in the world did you gather that, right? Like, like right. and again, it's because like nothing that you've consumed over the course of a day, over the course of a few days, over the course of a week, confirms that opposing point of view or even addresses it. If it does, it's a, it's a discrediting, you know, of a particular right. claim. Um, and so I think at least now there's not a ton of political science evidence on this, but as we're starting to have conversations about like polarization, hyperpolarization uh, and the media environment, we know that this is having an effect on how people think about politics, how they think about politicians. And so I think we can assume that then the next step is it will have an effect at the ballot box. And so people would say, people might say things like, um, well, how could political scientists like not really know this? There's been a whole like two plus decades long discussion about polarization within the literature, right? Mm -hmm. And some people argue um, that we're not actually deeply divided, we're closely divided, but political elites and our media environment have become more hyper-polarized, right? So it gives this illusion that we too, if you subscribe to this um, argument, that we too are becoming increasingly polarized, right? But there are these people that are like, it's a middle of the road thing and it's actually like the elites that are doing this work. It's not the masses. And then you have the people that are like, you're crazy because people are just different. <laughs> like we are hyper-polarized. Like people that drive Subarus and pickup trucks are not the same, right? Like they have different politics. They have different food preferences, like talking about Starbucks versus not, right? Like right. they eat different food. They subscribe to different insurance companies, thinking about, you know, like Allstate and mayhem, you know, and the research that's been done um, surrounding like that advertising and communication. So talking about mayhem and fear and anxiety, who's more likely to, you know, have this kind of insurance? a certain kind of ideologically leaning person as opposed to State Farm, like like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. These are like, mm. there are people that are in this camp that are saying like, it's not about us being closely divided and our elites becoming more divided. It's actually the masses that are more divided, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're still working through that argument. 
Um, but either way, I think the takeaway is that when you're talking about your social media environment, when you're talking about your broadcast or print media environment, most people want to read and consume information that confirms their ideas. And I think that can only have an effect in terms of thinking about further polarization um, and, and especially at the voting booth, like really confirming you know, who you're going to support or who you're going to vote against. Right. Yeah, I watched The Social Dilemma over the weekend. And have you seen it? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like, even at work, we use some of those same principles um, in like marketing. And so what it does, um, speaking specifically about social media is that you only see ads that subscribe to, you know, the kind of thinking that you subscribe to. You only see like those friend requests or like those posts from people who kind of mention the same things that you just do. It's like, you're in this echo chamber, like you said, where, you know, you're just hearing what you want to hear and it kind of confirms what you think. And then when you go out to the real world, <laughs> quote, right, quote, like, that's when you're like, wait, hold up, what, <laughs> what is going on? And I mean, I, we, we watched uh, The Social Dilemma, I guess that was like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Terrifying, yeah, terrifying, that's scary. right? Yeah. And the part that I think scared me the most um, was when they were talking about uh, like ro robots and movies and AI. And they were like, mm -hmm. you usually think about, you know, like robots coming in and taking over and you don't really think about what's actually going on in terms of like, we've already created this artificial intelligence with right. these algorithms that yeah. are programming the videos that you see that are responding to the things that you like that are giving you this information. They're like, but what we don't know is, you know, what happens when people are armed with that, with that information based on the algorithms. I was like, oh, mm, it's scary. Oh, yeah. it's crazy. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. done. So my next question for you is about um, polling. Um, you mentioned a few um, a little while ago. So 2016 seemed to be like, was it a polling error? Like what's going on? And people just saw, you know, Hillary Clinton was up in the polls and, you know, she miraculously lost, like people are just stunned the next day. Um, with this election, it's showing that, you know, currently Joe Biden is ahead in the polls, but a lot of people still have that skepticism about <laughs> Naga. <laughs> I'm, I, 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 I can't trust no poll. <laughs> not yeah. today, not like, today, not ever again. Y'all got me in 2016, but. Pull me once. <laughs> right. Pull me twice. Okay, let me try right. to calm some of your fears about polling, right? So, you know, one of the popular takeaways from the 2016 election was that polls failed the American people. Like, we can't trust them, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I'd like to draw on just a few findings uh, from the 2016 evaluation of polls by APOR, the American Association um, for Public Opinion Research. And so they had like three key findings that I think are important and have been instructive for uh, people doing polls, pollsters, polling houses, polling organizations in 2020. Um, the first thing they find in this report is that national polls were generally correct by historical standards, right? That these were among the most accurate uh, in estimating the popular vote since 1936. So collectively, these national polls, they indicated that Hillary Clinton had about a three percentage, three percentage point lead, and they were basically correct. Like she ultimately won the popular vote by two percentage points. So that was not off. What they found in this report that I feel like people should really pay attention to, that it was the state polls that showed what was a really competitive um, and uncertain contest. And so they ended up underestimating Trump support in the upper Midwest. So polls showed that Hillary Clinton was leading even if narrowly in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, um, which had voted Democratic, so that's a Democratic blue wall. For the last six presidential elections, um, those leads, at least in numbers in the polls, fed into this idea that she would win the blue wall but Donald Trump edged out victories in all three. And so some of the reasons that they find for this is an underestimation and support uh, for Trump. Um, and they give you like three reasons, which I think are really good ones. So the first is about like late breaking voters. So this idea that people change their preferences um, for candidates during the final weeks of the campaign 
in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Second, and like this is the really important part, many polls, uh, especially those that were on the state level, did not adjust their weights to correct for the over-representation of college-educated individuals um, in their sample. So what you do after you collect a sample for polls, you usually weight them based on the national average. Just in case, let's just say like, you have an oversample of people who have a college degree and or advanced degrees, but you want that to look like what the national average looks like. So you give it a weight of what the national level of education is like based on census metrics. State polls did not do that. So what happens when state polls don't do that, especially if they've oversampled high education individuals who tend to skew for Hillary Clinton. Oh, well, they're going to overreport Hillary Clinton support, support in the yeah. polls, right? right? So um, that led to an overestimated support for um, Hillary Clinton. And then, you know, some people that supported Donald Trump um, in pre-election polls, they did not, you know, reveal themselves as Trump supporters until after the election. So they talk about like the shy Trump effect. Mm -hmm. um, and these being the three key reasons why. And so what's happening now with state polls that I think is really good is that these state polls are really correctly waiting for education, which is great. Um, and that they're doing more deep dives into different audiences. So communities of color, rural voters, um, younger people trying to get larger samples of these individuals. So they have like a, a better understanding you know, of the public opinion. Mm -hmm. What's also different from polling now than was the case in 2016 is like Joe Biden is, is leading by double digits, right? Like you're talking like 15 upwards of 31. So among likely women voters, Joe Biden leads Donald Trump by 31 points. Yeah. Um, and one of the latest polls from the Washington Post and ABC News. Like 31 points is a nearly impossible gap to close. Right. And so like, for me, when I'm looking at the polls, everything inside of me as a political scientist says like, this is what we should believe based on these double digit numbers. But as a black woman, right? right like there is still something inside of me that's like 2016, even though I gave you all of those reasons, that collective like, emotional you know, experience. Right, like, <laughs> emotional experience. But like, what I'm most concerned about for this election is the mode of voting. Like, so for right, me, right. I don't care if Joe Biden is up 25, 30 points, whatever category among subgroups, I don't care about that. What matters is if the ballots get counted or not. Right. Right, what matters is like, are people's mail-in ballots ending up in a dumpster off, off the side of 76? <laughs> like, that's like, like that, that's what matters. Um, and so there's no way to understand that dynamic in a poll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> so like, that, that for me is like, yeah. my hesitation. Like everything inside of me says, yeah, this looks like it's trending, you know, towards Joe Biden across a number of subgroups um, and in double digit numbers, which, Hillary Clinton did not have in mm -hmm. 2016. Yeah. But it's the mode of voting and like the pandemic and all of the other things that give me a voter suppression, right? Mm -hmm. Justin, your background in law, you know, voter mm -hmm. suppression that gives me pause because right. none of these polls matter if people's names have been purged off the voter rolls and they can't right. vote, right? right. Yeah. Like those are the things that I'm concerned about that we cannot account for. In yeah, because <laughs> I was reading um, 538, yeah. which is um, a database um, website. They do polls. Yeah. And so they said that even though, because, you know, they analyze the polls, they do polls of polls, and then they kind of aggregate everything. And they said that, you know, right now, I think Joe Biden has an 85% chance of winning or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so even though he is ahead in like their poll of polls, when you look at who is like who do voters feel is likely to win it's an even split because right. people think that somehow the republicans are going to like you said purge those those um voters from the rolls they're going to do something shady with the votes they're just not going to get counted or they're doubling down on saying how you know fraudulent vote by mail is which is going to prompt democrats okay. to vote by mail you know and and want to prove you know that it's it's um it's not fraudulent. But then 
if everyone who's a Democrat and they, you know, produce the numbers that two times more Democrats are voting by mail this time, then they're going to, I just feel like they're going to do something with those ballots. I, I don't trust what they're doing with the postal service. You know, it's like something's not right. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm taking my ballot to the secure box because I just don't trust putting it in my mailbox and right? trusting that yeah. the uh, postman will pick it up and deliver it to where it needs to be. Um, again, I'm just always skeptical. I think as an attorney, you're trained to anticipate the worst. Um, today, as I was working, I was watching the uh, confirmation hearing day one for uh, Amy Cody Barrett. And all whole time I'm thinking is just like, we cannot, you know, confirm this woman, but I do have a sneaking, I feel like she is going to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm worried that if the election results do go to litigation, it will be in the Supreme Court, which will be 6-3, conservative, she owes Trump a favor, and we're screwed. So I am personally terrified. Um, I want to um, just ask you a question, kind of going off the polling, which I feel like polling kind of synthesizes all this information, but I feel like voting in America is a really emotional thing. People would say like, you know, I feel like with Hillary, they just said, well, I just don't like her, but couldn't verbalize mm -hmm. why or what they didn't like, right? And I think that people in this country, in our democracy, sometimes might vote against their interests if they don't feel emotionally tied to a candidate. I, um, Hillary didn't have the same excitement that Obama did. I feel like Kamala has some excitement, but I feel like America has a um, tricky feeling about Black women. Um, but given that your um, work is in race, gender, and also um, sexual orientation, we're two gay Black men, how do you view um, you know, the, political, the political climate in terms of engaging those groups who haven't felt comfortable voting or don't feel spoken to in the political arena and how when those groups feel spoken to there's oftentimes a, um, a great change like we had historic midterm elections um, in 2018 that nominated most or um, elected the most women ever rather but how do you think that the changing of our country's fabric and makeup is impacted when those people feel spoken to yeah, I mean, you know, politics is about coalition building, like winning elections is about coalition building. Um, and so you have to do as, as much as possible to appeal literally to as many groups as you can, um, whether that's in terms of the policies that you're adopting um, and the way in which they appeal to certain groups. Um, but either way, every election cycle, politicians are trying to appeal to various coalitions to get them to turn out um to vote and you know as america continues to diversify like people will have to continue to you know stretch out <laughs> their their outreach to broaden um their approach to reach these different segments of the population and so right now especially with the democratic party um there are a number of voters that are in the more progressive wing of the party that feel completely alienated by the party Right, and this is not just with the selection of um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This really dates back to you know 2015. If if we're being really honest, uh, when you're talking about the the Democratic, uh, the DNC, the National Party, um, trying to block really progressive uh, individuals from becoming like precinct captains or like leaders of county party organizations, and then you know subsequently doing the magic so that Bernie Sanders <laughs> with the super delegates so that so that Bernie Sanders isn't the nominee it's Hillary Clinton and right. even for this primary season you have literally the most diverse slate of candidates in terms of race ethnicity gender sexuality and then you still end up picking the centrist who is an older white male um and not that there's anything well there's plenty of things that we can talk about. <laughs> right. Highly, highly problematic, especially like the creepster aspects. But um, but you have a certain segment of the Democratic Party feeling completely abandoned by the Democratic Party, right? People that are really strong supporters of the Green New Deal um, and climate change, individuals who feel like um, having a Kamala Harris and a Joe Biden, Joe Biden, who is a sole author of the crime bill in the early 90s, 
at the top of their party when members of their family or people that they know might have suffered based on the harsh penalties that were put forth in this bill, right? So you have folks that are, that are feeling pretty apathetic. What I think has changed that apathy among a number of different groups within the Democratic coalition, especially be the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so for people that are like, I'm not voting, I don't like Joe Biden, I don't like Kamala Harris, I'm not doing it, they don't speak for me. RBG dies, and then we get conversations about this new individual, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and you start to stir up, you know, the pro-choice women contingent, which is multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and we know that in 2012, when stirred up in response to uh, Todd Aiken's comment about legitimate rape and abortion and women's bodies having ways of getting rid of babies. Right. Um, if, there's, if there's a legitimate rape, I don't think that's the coalition you want to stir up before an election. Like you were saying, Justin, in your comments, in 2018, you have the largest share ever of women turning out to vote. And that's because of a Me Too, right? right. And many of those women, not all, but many of those women, that are part of that Me Too coalition are also pro-choice and pro-Planned Parenthood and support the decision made in Roe v. Wade, right? Like, and, so, and so I just don't know, especially when you have a 31 point gap between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on likely women voters, that that's the group of people you want to get involved in this election. Like you don't want that smoke. Like I right, right. <laughs> you don't want that me too smoke. Um, and so I think if anything, uh, there are a number of women that will be more likely to turn out, not just because Kamala Harris is on the ballot, but because women's issues are on the ballot. Um, a number of LGBTQIA individuals who will also uh, turn out because they understand what having a conservative Supreme Court might mean for their rights yeah. in terms of, of marriage, in terms of adoption, yeah. uh, parenthood, a number of other things. Um, Black Americans, of course, um, who are willing to perhaps overlook some of the, the problems with both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's past pertaining to the criminal justice system because at least now they're not telling white supremacist organizations to stand back and stand by. Right. So I think that there's a, a number of ways in which we know that you know, politicians are trying to speak to these groups, trying to get them engaged uh, in politics. And as our nation becomes more diverse, this outreach is going to have to become you know, more specialized. And especially among the Republican party, they're gonna have to do a great deal more to reach out to these different coalitions. Um, and the Republican Party, if they wanted to, could have a large contingent of Black supporters because most Black most Black people are ideologically conservative, right? right. Like not all, but most of them. Yeah, I mean the Black church is a major pillar. Yeah, right. Like you know, but it's just that I don't know those racial issues you're, right. <laughs> you're missing out on, like in terms of, in terms of act it. activating that coalition, right? Um, I don't I don't know how many. Black folks feel really comfortable when you start playing games with the clan, right? Like that's right. I, but they had all those Brexit people right? down at the South Lawn over the weekend. <laughs> oh, child. You saw. I did. Ugh. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's talk about voter suppression. Where's <laughs> my drink? No, I'm just kidding. I don't <laughs> have one. <laughs> So a couple episodes ago, I made a comment about not voting when I was in college. And I got a lot of heat oh. from that because um, I told the story that my nephew um, just registered to vote. It'll be his first election that he's voting in. And so, um, you know, he's a sophomore in college. And, you know, I said that when I was in college, even though one of my fraternity's national programs is voter registration, a voteless people is a hopeless people that when I was in college, I didn't really vote. Like it wasn't a thing. You know, I'm from South Carolina, I'm from a very deep red state, a deep red district. And voting as a Democrat in South Carolina, we're always 
we hear the message, well, your vote isn't going to count because you're in, you know, this, this red state. So, you know, thinking about that, like, is that, and that's been ingrained in like, not just me, like a lot of people um, in South Carolina, and you're from Georgia, Camille. So, I mean, you probably know that, or have probably heard it, I don't know. Um, But, you know, is that kind of a form of generational voter suppression? Oh, Hmm. that's an interesting question. I mean, this idea that, you know, feeling like your vote doesn't count, that it doesn't make a difference, um, because essentially like the people that are on the ballot would not have your interests at heart and that leading you like not to want to engage, those sentiments are real. Um, And I'm not sure that that's like a, a generational sentiment. I know for sure, you know, growing up in the South, it's like, (laughs) <laughs> like, like, like we know that, I mean, the area I grew up in, um, Alpharetta, uh, now is more diverse. I grew up in the district that Newt Gingrich came from, Ooh. Um, Georgia 6th. And so now Lucy McBath, who's a black, self-identified right. black woman, um, the mother of Jordan Davis, I believe, um, mm-hmm. who was shot and killed uh, in Florida um, at a gas station. Um, because his music was too loud. Um, shame. She's now the representative for that district. So, and even when you think about like South Carolina, what's happening now between I think Lindsey Graham and Jamie and Harrison. Jamie Harrison, yeah. Um, in terms of the Senate race, uh, mm-hmm. Jamie Harrison breaking records for uh, fundraising. So what's happening now, even in the state of Georgia, is they're thinking they can turn Georgia blue this election. And wow. they're, they're possibly thinking they can turn a number of Southern states blue. And even when you look in the early 90s, Bill Clinton was able to turn most of the South blue, right? When you look at the map, right? So it's not like it can't be done. It can, um, it just requires the right kinds of appeals. And I think that the meta language that Democrats in the South Uh, have been using to appeal to those people is to say things like your vote does count right and you need to turn out to vote because people are talking about the affordable care act obamacare um because your health care is on the line you need to vote because wages are on the line so talking about this meta language to appeal to your very diverse coalitions that's been pretty effective so I'm really interested to see what happens, you know, in the Southern states, especially in Georgia. Um, and the thought, I mean, that, you know, coming from Georgia 6th was Newt Gingrich and now it's a black woman. Mm-hmm. Like that just gives you some thought about like how the area might be changing in terms, right. of, in terms of diversity. And I think some of the language that politicians are using to help get these people out to support them is by saying like, your every single vote does matter. You can make changes. We right. don't have right. to remain, you know, beholden to this party, but it's up to you, right? And so I, I think for a, a number of years, people have felt that, felt those sentiments, you know, throughout various places in the United States, even in states that are like incredibly blue. You know, folks that live in California that might want to vote Republican, that do have, um, you know, Republicans in uh, their districts United States Congress or in their state ledge. Um, but th- those ideas persist. And so, you know, voting to me is like very important. And I feel like it should be incredibly important to anyone that's a citizen, you know, in the United States, especially those of us that come from marginalized groups, uh, Black folks particularly. There's blood on that vote. Right. right? Um, there's blood on that vote for Black people, there's blood on that vote for women. There's blood on that vote for women, for for all women, not just white women. There's blood on that vote for working class people, regardless of race and ethnicity. Um, All of the groups that were denied the right to vote when we started voting, there's blood on that vote. And so, you know, with that in mind, it's it's on us to, you know, take this most important franchise and to exercise our right to vote. Right, I think it was um, it was John Lewis, right, who said, you know, your vote is precious, uh, almost sacred. It's the most powerful nonviolent tool we have to create a more perfect union. Right. right, like 
And so for me, I would have probably, if I was paying attention last week and I heard you say you didn't, <laughs> I would have been like, oh, I would have been like, good, sir. Right. <laughs> like, you know, because I can understand, like, there's a number of college age students that don't participate. Mm-hmm. But just imagine if all of the 18 year olds, all of the freshmen and sophomores that are of age to vote right now in the United States, if they decided to turn out and vote, what would happen? Everything would probably be blue. <laughs> like, not, 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 like not all of them, right? Because there are plenty of conservative, you know, 18 to 21 year olds. Um, but I would, I would say there's probably more liberal ones because we know millennials and Gen Zers are fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Mm-hmm. They don't support a lot of government, government spending, but are also very like pro-LGBT, want to do things about climate change. And those issues would ultimately outweigh the others, you know, at the ballot box. And so like, again, the goal is to try and make individuals or certain coalitions feel like no one cares about what you think, but you can make them care because you can vote. And if you decide to vote together, you can bring about really meaningful changes. And so I think that's what, at least I hope that's, the messaging that people are getting with all of these commercials about voting. This is like the first election where I've seen so many commercials about, so you know, voting and your vote counts and make sure you got a plan and all this other stuff. But we're also in a COVID environment. So that's probably right. why. I just can't recall any other election or NBA season or NFL season. It's <laughs> <laughs> like commercials about, you know, voting, making sure you vote. Are you registered to vote? Got the vote? Like, you know, just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that's partly COVID, but still. Yeah. Sure. I know for me, again, Maurice, I did kind of give you the side eye when you didn't vote, because to Camille's point, blood is on that vote. But I always look at it like, if it wasn't important or valuable, the most powerful tool we have, then why would they try to keep it away from so many people through right. gerrymandering, through felon voter disenfranchisement right. and things like that? Like, it, they really do try to, they know it's powerful and billions of dollars are spent to keep people, I think more money spent to keep people from voting than the actual make people vote. Mm. But um, my next question kind of goes, it flows off of that, goes to just like voter apathy or feeling, um, you know, helpless or just like, it doesn't even matter, especially in this political climate where it's just become a total circus. I mean, I've never seen breaking news break so much. It's just every other day it is something and it's stressful and it makes you just want to disengage, mm. right? So how, um, how, what do you recommend for people to kind of get re-engaged or get excited? Because for people who don't know what to do at this point, I don't know what to tell them. But I do think that our democracy requires a high level of participation and people just are over it. So yeah. like, what, what do you think voters should do, our citizens can do to kind of cut through the BS and get engaged in a, in a, in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. You know, when you think about everything that's going yeah. on mm-hmm. um, and you know given the media environment now that we have so many choices netflix hulu all the other things am i going to choose to watch the 24-hour news cycle like you justin or am <laughs> i going to watch the social dilemma <laughs> like or right, am i going to like right. now and watch something else like stacy and darcy 90 day fiance i don't know oh my god did you see <laughs> it that is good. <laughs> I'm behind. I'm behind. Oh, um, behind, <laughs> Florian girl. It's a mess. But I think, I mean, what I tell my students that are feeling, you know, burnout, um, is literally just, even if it's one thing, find one thing that you can get excited about. Right? It doesn't have to be like ten things. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. tax policy. It doesn't have like or something. <laughs> like find one thing that you're passionate about, that you care about. It might not be anything else that any of your friends care about, but like one thing, right? And and become active in whatever that one thing is. Like if you're pro-life, go and join, you know, the pro-life club and like live your best, live your best actual life and, you know, do the advocacy for pro-life organizations. If you want to do something about climate change, go and find some organizations on campus and get involved with climate change. For the people that aren't on college campuses, right, for all of the rest of us folk, go and find these organizations that are involved in these issues. There are thousands of them, right? And there are plenty of people that are concerned about whatever little niche thing you might be concerned about. Um, Find those people, 
find it, I don't care if it's one thing, if it's half of one thing, if you're just maybe even slightly interested, like <laughs> figure it out and whatever it is, you know, go and do the work and advocate for it because you might not care about anything else that's happening, but there's right. something that you care about. There's something that you care about that's directly related to politics. And my statement to my students is to figure that thing out, right? And to, to go to the best of your ability, do your little research, find your organizations, find your people and go be an advocate for whatever that issue is. And I think by focusing at least perhaps on that, on that one thing or that half of one thing or that idea that that might get you um, to have greater interest in politics or at least to understand where politicians stand on that issue that you care about. Um, and figure out a way that, you know, you can make a change. The best way to make changes, if we were not in COVID, um, <laughs> is to just be dialed in into local politics that covers everything, right, that no one pays attention to. Like, go right. and be a pain in your local politician's side. Like, make them know your name and let them know you're watching them, right? Like, that's your, right. like, that you're going to come to, you know, their meetings, once a month, um, that you're going to pay attention to the things that they're doing in your community. Like if you can't get excited about anything else, certainly you care about what's going on where you live, at least you should. Um, right. And so these local officials, any elected official should be responsive to the needs of their constituents. So even if you can't find a particular issue, like dial into local politics and see what they're doing in your backyard, right? That coffee shop didn't just get there without a, without a vote. <laughs> right, like, right. like that particular construction on that corner, uh, that little gentrifying area in your community didn't just pop up one day, it went through a whole process. So to, you know, even pay attention to local politics and see what's happening in your community, if you can get excited about those kinds of things. Cool. Last question for you, it's a two-parter. So, you know, being, we've been living in this kind of reality show world of politics for the last, however many years, um, do you think politics will go back to quote unquote normal? <laughs> and who are some kind of rising stars or people who should be on the radar for either party in the future? Yeah, what is normal? Well, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> couldn't tell you, don't know her. I mean, like, you know, what does normal look like? Is normal like not having someone monitor the Twitter feed of the leaders right. reporting on them every two seconds and the news cycle changing depending on what that person is tweeting? Like, I hope we go back to that kind of normal. Um, I don't want to see first lady titties anymore. What? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Did you say you don't want to see? Or I don't want to see that anymore. Oh. Um yeah, I mean rising stars. I feel like you like people got a taste of the rising stars in the Democratic Party um during the primaries. Like, so those are all the folks that I think are 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 gonna be um emerging so people like Gretchen Whitmer the governor of Michigan um oh gosh God bless this kid like Gretchen that's the stuff we get on American news now like, like, it's crazy like God God bless you um that was that was breaking news um so I think that it would be pretty much anyone that was on that debate stage, you know, like your, your Pete Buttigieg, mm -hmm. um, in the, either of the Castro brothers um, in Texas. Um, I think people like Jamie Harrison that are running for office in South Carolina, folks like Stacey Abrams. No. Um, <laughs> what? Nothing. No, she's not. He don't feature her. I don't feature Why? her. Why? We're gonna take that offline. <laughs> <laughs> I am not doing this with you today. Um, I think in the Republican Party, um, folks like um, Dan Crenshaw, 
um, who's a former United States Navy SEAL. Um, he's from Texas's second congressional district, I think. You might know him from SNL. He has an eye patch from his injury during the war. Mm. Um, so I think folks uh, like him, there are a few congresswomen in California that are Republicans whose names I can't remember, but I taught um, one of their children at Villanova. I think Nikki Haley is- No ma'am, no ma'am. Listen to me. Nikki Haley now has the state gubernatorial experience. She has the international experience when she first- You're an ambassador. Um, for President Trump. So she's got all the trappings to be the next Republican. Um, she's a brown girl in a black and white world. <laughs> <laughs> when she said that, I hollered. <laughs> she tried it. But I think I think she would be a, she'd be a great uh, presidential candidate. She has the resume. Um, let's see who from Georgia and Florida. I think Ron DeSantis really wants the governor in Florida. I think he really wants that national that national appeal. Andrew um, going to come back. Come on, Andrew Gillen. Andrew's, Andrew's working his plan. <laughs> Whatever it takes, Andrew. I support you. <laughs> I support you. I, <laughs> I know y'all probably roasted that man on this We podcast. did. We know we did. And so yesterday funny. was National Coming Out Day. He did have a little post. Oh, it was. It was. Did he really? He did. He did oh, yeah. What did he yeah. say? Um, it was basically about you know people who have the courage to come out or people who weren't at that stage yet. You know, be your true self, your authentic self. And it was like, and I'm gonna do me. At the end, I was like, okay. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what it said. <laughs> you see. <laughs> Do you see yourself? Do you see how you do? Oh gosh. Do you see how you do? I Love for myself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think those are the individuals. And you know, Andrew Gillum notwithstanding, living in his truth, like living your truth. Yeah, and that's yeah. I mean, that's living your truth. How many more people can you appeal to by that being your truth? Awesome. So anyhow, that's that's what I have for you today. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. I love that. Live in your truth. That's a great note to end on. Um, assistant Professor of Political Science, Camille uh, Burge. Associate. Associate. Okay, I'm sorry. Associate give Professor. Give her correct. her credentials correct. Yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Associate Professor of Political Science at Villanova University. Camille Burge, we thank you for um, sharing your wisdom with our audience. I think that this has been the most informative conversation I've had on politics this political season or election she's season. Smart, so though. Smart. She's smart. Real smart. <laughs> tell the people, Camille, if you'd like, um, if you could tell our listeners where they can find more of your work, your articles, you don't want to. No, I'm just kidding. You can go to my <laughs> website. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You can go to my website, CamilleDBurge.com. Uh, um, awesome. I have my work there and other details about other things. That's great. Thanks so much, Camille. No problem. Thanks again to Dr. Camille Burge from Villanova University, Associate Professor of Political Science. We'll put information about voting, the election, all of that down in the show notes. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Category Is. Be sure to like, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all things social media at Category Is Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can contact us at CategoryIsPod at gmail.com. Check us out on the web at CategoryIsPod.com. <laughs>